Now, Father, we come to your word, and as always, Lord, we come with hearts that are full of worship, wonder, praise for who you are and for what you've done for us by your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we prepare, Lord, for the Lord's table, we were just reminded in the song that we sang, of the atonement that you made, of the substitution that you took on yourself. We were guilty, vile, and helpless, and you were the sinless, harmless Son of God. And in the mystery of your grace, oh Lord, in my place condemned, you stood. And we worship you and we praise you. Prepare us now, Father, by your word for the Lord's table. Though this passage of Scripture is not about the Lord's table, nevertheless, it is about you and your provision for us. And Father, I pray that you would use this time now to convict us and to encourage us and to fill us with the love of your Son and your Spirit, and change us, conform us a little more to the image of Christ. And I pray, Father, for any one in this room, and I know there must certainly be some who are here or down the hall or listening to my voice by recording, anyone who doesn't know you and perhaps thinks they do. Oh, Father, would you send your Spirit to convict them of sin, righteousness, judgment, Draw them to yourself. Don't allow them, Father, to stand before your throne alone without the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ, without the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But reveal their sin, expose it, and forgive it. We pray in the name of our Savior these things. Amen. Amen. We are in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, kind of picking up where we left off last week. Actually, we finished 15 and dabbled a little bit into 16. We're going to kind of go back and hit those first few verses again this morning to give us a running start. And so we're in chapter 16 of the Gospel of John, and that means we're nearing the end of Jesus' farewell discourse. And this is the record of Jesus' last words to his disciples, last instructions to his disciples before he is crucified. Soon on this very night... Judas will betray Jesus. He will lead a band of soldiers, a mob will come and arrest Jesus and take him away to be condemned. And they will bring him before the Roman authorities who will three times pronounce him innocent. Isn't that amazing? The Roman authorities, the real rulers of of that period, pronounced him three times innocent. But the Jews, the nation of Israel, condemned him as guilty. The disciples are now in the upper room, or they were recently. They're now out in front of the house, and they don't know that Jesus is headed for crucifixion, but Jesus has let on enough to let them know that a storm is brewing, and they are about to be hit by it. And even though Jesus has kept the details from them, he knows that if they're going to survive the storm that's coming, they're going to need help. They're going to need support. They're going to need to be equipped. In chapter 14, then, as we look backwards, the tone of Jesus' words was largely comfort. Comfort. Let not your hearts be troubled. He says that two times in chapter 14. It's about comfort. And then in chapter 15, his focus kind of shifts away from comfort more toward admonition and instruction. Okay, so he's cramming a lot here. He's packing his last words with all kinds of things. It's a, it's a veritable cornucopia of instruction and comfort and admonition. But 15 is mainly admonition and instruction. But then here in 16, 14 and 15 were present and past. In 16, he's looking at the future. He's preparing them for what's about to come. The whole tone is heavy on prediction, prediction. Jesus is telling them what is going to happen after this initial storm. When When the crucifixion is over and the resurrection comes, which they're not anticipating, what will happen? 
What is going to happen? More importantly, he tells them what the, not so much what they're going to do, but what the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've seen that very Trinitarian passage, this here at the end of the, the farewell discourse. In fact, all the way through, even in the upper room, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again and again and again. And now he is going to tell them what this triune God is going to do in them and for them and through them after the crucifixion and resurrection, which again, they are not anticipating. More importantly, um, all of this kind of comes back to hope and comfort. Because what Jesus is doing all the way through is preparing them Things are going to get really, really, really bad, but take heart. In fact, the last words in the farewell discourse are, um, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Now, one of the main purposes of Jesus' parting instruction here was to prevent his men from being taken surprise and from falling into apostasy like Judas did. He explains that in verse 1 here in chapter 16, and look, look at this with me. These things I have spoken to you that, um, so that you may be kept from stumbling. Interesting word, this stumbling. In the Greek, it is, uh, it is scandalizo, from which we get scandalous or scandal or scandalize. It became kind of a technical term for apostasy. It was a scandalous affair any time, and especially with Judas, someone went apostate. It's a term often used of apostasy throughout the New Testament, or falling away or abandoning one's devotion to Jesus. And so Jesus is telling them what's going to happen in the future so that when it does take place, they will remember and be encouraged to stay the course, fulfill their mission to the world, And let there be no mistake, what they were about to experience was not going to be fun, it wasn't going to be pretty, it was going to be extreme hardship. And just follow along with me, beginning with verse 1, here's what Jesus says. By the way, starting with verse 18 of the previous chapter, this is all about persecution, and it was kind of generalized, he was just kind of generally talking about it, it's coming and doesn't say what it is, now he says what it is. Verse 1 of 16, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. You may be kept from apostasy. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you, for everyone who kills you. Can you imagine hearing that? How many people are going to kill me? People are going to kill me? Everyone who kills you will think that he is offering service to God. Verse 3, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Verse 4, but these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. As I said last week, I think what he means there was I was your protector. I was your helper. Remember Jesus, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, says, I'm leaving, but I will send you another comforter. What's the implication there? I have been your comforter. I've been your protector. But I'm going to send another. There's at least two of us. And the other was the Holy Spirit. These things I said to you, I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Jesus protected them, and he bore the brunt of the onslaught of the unbelieving world. So the disciples were destined to face severe persecution. And what's worse, they were going to have to face it without Jesus. And this is something that Jesus told them repeatedly. I mean, just looking at the book of John, okay? Just looking at the gospel of John. uh, Listen to this. I mean, they should have known this was coming, but it was just, it was so outside their paradigm that they couldn't imagine they would ever be without Jesus. But here it is, John 7, verse 33, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who has sent me. I'm going. I'm going. John 13, 33. Little children, which was, Jesus, very endearing phrase. This is not, um, 
This is not Jesus poking fun at them. He's not calling them names. He's not belittling them. He's using terminology, very carefully crafted words to communicate his affection for them. By the way, he does this after the resurrection. They're out fishing and they can't catch anything. Jesus comes walking up on the shore and he says, little children, have you caught anything? Try casting your net on the side of the boat, right? And John looks over at Peter and says, I think that's the Lord. (laughs) He always calls us that. (laughs) Little children, yet a little while, this is 1333, let a little while and I am with you and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. John 14, two through three, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. John 14, 12, I go back to my father. John 14, 28, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. I mean, there is no ambiguity here. He has told them repeatedly and he, they heard him tell the Jews, which he references here, that he is going away. Now in 16, verse 5, He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? At this point in the narrative, the disciples seem to have lost interest in where Jesus is going. Because he has repeated this again and again in this short time, just since they've been in the upper room, I mean, that's where he washed their feet. That's where he instituted the Lord's table. I mean, they are still at that building. They're standing in the courtyard or something now, but they're close by. They haven't started making their trek to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is all happening on the same night. And at this point in the narrative, the disciples just seem to have lost interest in where he is going. They're just so shocked that he keeps saying he's leaving them. And now sorrow has, over his impending departure, has gripped their hearts. Verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. The language here seems to indicate that a deep sorrow had overtaken their hearts that would not cease until Easter joy replaces it. The pain of parting was going to be very, very real. And it also seems evident that Jesus is genuinely grieved with his men because none of them are asking him, where is he going? Ask me questions, come on. There's so much more here to be learned. Ask me. But they didn't ask, where are you going? How long will you be gone? Why are you leaving? What are the implications for us, our lives, our mission? What do we do while you're gone? How long is that going to be? When are we going to see you again? None of those questions. On the previous occasion when Jesus announced that he was going away, there were questions. Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And then later on, Thomas asked a similar question, but to these questions, he had clearly indicated that he was leaving, not to another geographical area on the planet, but rather he was going to his father. He was going to his father. 1428 makes that clear, that this return to the father should have fulfilled, should have filled their hearts with rejoicing. And from then on, he would send another helper. Namely, the one whom Jesus repeatedly calls the spirit of truth, the comforter, the paraclete. And by this time, frankly, there were no questions. So deeply concerned were these men, their own impending loss, that their self-consumed sorrow crowded out every other consideration. You ever been there? You're so consumed with what appears to be coming at you that you just lose sight of everything. Or you feel so embittered about being mistreated that your whole focus becomes self, 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 self. 
And things that would otherwise be obvious just aren't happening. Your heart is consumed with you. You can't worship. You can't hardly pray. You can't minister. If you had an opportunity for evangelism, you wouldn't take it. None of you asks, Jesus says, I think bitterly. None of you ask me, where are you going? Nevertheless, Jesus had really big plans for them. And all of it would hinge on the arrival and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The most significant theme in this passage is the coming of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus would send his Spirit for two reasons. And this is going to be kind of the structure of the rest of this message. He would send his Spirit for two reasons. Number one, to help, and number two, to judge. He was being sent to help and to judge. Let's look at the first one. The Holy Spirit comes to help. The Holy Spirit comes to help. And the implications here are so profound for us, so profound for us practically, especially as we're thinking about the age in which we live and our desire to reach the lost, especially now in where this culture is and where it's going. We need to hear this. I, was, I, I tell you almost every week, don't I? We come here and I'm thinking about... Uh, you know, preparing for the next message, and what's it going to be like, and, and uh, should I choose another passage? Remember last week, I was thinking about choosing something else because it was Vision Sunday, and I was going to kind of say something about the culture and where we are and where we're going and all of that stuff, and I looked at the next passage in John, and it was exactly what we needed, and then we talked about evangelism last week, kind of the pink elephant in the room that Calvary Bible Church hasn't dealt with yet, and we're starting to deal with that, and I look at this next passage, and what is it? But the Holy Spirit coming to empower his disciples to spread the gospel. It's just uh, the sovereign rule of God over, um, over these minute little things. Um, you, know what, you know what it tells me? Why does he do that? When I think about, Lord, why, why do you do this? Why do, you, why do you so work in my heart that I think this is what, this is what our people need to hear and then I come to the text, oh, there it is. Why do you do that? I think there's a real answer. There's an easy answer. He loves us. And he wants to equip us. He, he wants us to know that he loves us. Look, I don't, I don't hear voices in my head from God. He speaks to me every time I look at the pages of his word. And I don't have to worry about timing on that. When I need what God has said, he gives it to me at just the right time. And there's no explanation for that except his divine providence. So the Holy Spirit comes to help. The disciples had no idea. They had no idea how good it was going to be to have the Holy Spirit come to them. Jesus describes him as a helper. Some translations have counselor. He calls him the spirit of truth, the one who will come and bring them the truth, and we'll look at that next time. Sometimes people say they wish they lived in the days of Jesus where they could hear his teaching firsthand and see his miracles with their own eyes, but here Jesus is saying that believers are better off after the spirit comes, after he is gone, than they are otherwise or were. The fact is, in one sense, you are better off, listen to this, you are better off now with the Spirit than Adam was in the Garden of Eden without the Spirit. You have the living Christ dwelling within you. In that context, in the Garden of Eden, the Lord was with Adam, but not in him. And through the person of the Holy Spirit... The Lord would be in him and in them. Think of it this way. God was with man in the garden. He was with man in the tabernacle. He was with man in the temple. He was with man in Christ, but he has now taken up residence in man by the Holy Spirit. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit didn't work in people, move in people, fill people, use people, gift people. But in terms of the kind of indwelling that we have now, it's different. 
There is both continuity and discontinuity, but that's not what this message is about. Jesus makes this explicit to the disciples in two places in John. John 14, 17, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, these are Jesus' words. Look at 14, 17. He says this, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because, watch the terminology here, he abides with you and will be, what? In you. And then, John 7, verse 39, kind of go back a few more chapters. And the question then is, okay, so when will the Holy Spirit... In, He's doing other things in people, but when would the indwelling come? When would the indwelling spirit come? John reports, John 7, 39. John says, this, he, that is Jesus, he said about the spirit whom those who believe in Jesus were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's the key phrase there. Why wasn't he giving yet? Because he was not yet glorified. In other words, Jesus would send the Holy Spirit to indwell his men permanently with power. And all who would believe thereafter, following his resurrection, after he was glorified. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. Who's he speaking about? He's speaking about every person who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are a true disciple, if you are a child of God, if you are a real Christian, then your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, back in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he uses that same terminology to speak about the church. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And because he indwells you, you are being conformed into the likeness of Christ, and you have all the resources you need to be faithful to the Lord in every and any circumstance. Listen, we can, we can argue back and forth as theologians have all day long. They have for centuries and centuries and centuries about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I don't want to get bogged down in that. The critical thing now is that you know if you are a child of God, then you are indwelt by the Spirit. And he is doing two things. He's making you more holy. He's making you more like Christ. And number two, he's equipping you for the work of the ministry, empowering you for the work of ministry. And that's critical. I mean, okay, let's go back to last week. And we talk about the pink elephant in the room. Okay, we're, we're heavy on teaching, heavy on ex exhortation. But how are we doing on evangelism? How we don't like to talk about that. That's too convicting. Well, we need to talk about it. But how are we going to have the power and the equipping to get there? How are we going to be able to do that effectively for the glory of God? Answer, the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit. Tell you what, let me give you a word of encouragement for a different direction, just in the whole realm of evangelism. You know, all these uh, counterfeit revivals that have happened around the country and around the world, and I don't want to get into all of that, but there are a lot of counterfeit stuff going on in the name of spirituality, in the name of, of, uh, of God, and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, and all of that, and we need to be really careful about that. But you know why? Those things are so attractive to people. Even people like us here, there's something about that that we think, yeah, it repels us, but man, I want to experience God. Don't you want to experience God? I want to experience God. I was one time at a, at a luncheon with uh, Hank Hanegraaff. Uh, it was me and him and 300 other of my friends. <laughs> uh, this is not a personal thing, but I remember he was with his Counterfeit Revival book, and I'm not sure how I got invited to that lunch, but uh, uh, one of this, uh, an African-American pastor stood up and said, Hank, I understand what you're saying, but my people want to experience God. Why don't I go back and tell them 
If it's not all of that stuff, what do I tell them? And he didn't, he didn't miss a beat. He said, go back and tell your people. You want to experience God? Get out there and start sharing your faith with the people you know. Share the gospel. I guarantee you will experience God. Because you're going to have to deal with the fear. You're going to have to deal maybe with a little bit of rejection. And you're going to see God work in people's hearts. And you're going to go, good night. What have I, what have, I have been so fearful of? Beloved, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the spirit of truth. You have the spirit of power. And he's doing something in this world through his people. And if you are one of his people, he will use you. So you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, back in 14 when he's talking about abide in Christ, and 13 where he, he says the Father and, and the Son will make their abode in you, therefore abide in him. And now we have the Holy Spirit who's in on it. He's making his abode in you. So now we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now you abide in him. Because he indwells you, you are being conformed to the likeness of his Son, and you have all the resources you need to be faithful in the next moment. There are people sometimes when, when I'm trying to help them deal with a sin issue in their life, they just say, I can't. And I just want to say, I, I thought you said you were a child of God. I don't want to be sarcastic here or anything, but understand, if you have the Holy Spirit living in your life, there is no such thing as I can't. Not when it comes to the things no God wants you to do, you can. It's just going to be hard. And probably not as hard as you think. Frankly, the original disciples could hardly imagine such a blessed gift from God. And so they missed out on the joy of anticipation and found themselves full of sorrow instead. So, Jesus was sending the Holy Spirit to help them. He, had, he that is Jesus, had been their helper. But now he would send another helper. The paraclete in the Greek, it's parakaleo, which means one who comes beside for the purpose of helping. In the world that hates Christ and persecutes his people, the Holy Spirit comes as, as your defender and certainly came as the apostles' defender to prove that they had been sent by God with a message of salvation and he came to empower and equip them to fulfill their mission of making disciples. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? We're all about discipleship. It's just evangelism is the first part of that. This is why the author of Hebrews could write this, these critical words that you find all through the scriptures. Hebrews 13, 6. The author says, We confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid what will man do to me? Now, there's a great text, isn't it? I mean, what's the number one inhibitor of evangelism? Fear of man. Here's a text for you. Put that in your pocket and meditate on it this week. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And we know from the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit did indeed come to help. This is evident not only in the miraculous signs and, and wonders that occurred in the day of Pentecost, but because of how deeply the disciples were changed after the resurrection. For example, on the very night Jesus is giving them his final instructions, Jesus would be arrested, and the text says that all of his men ran away in fear. And it was a fulfillment of prophecy that they would desert him. But after the resurrection, after the resurrection, after the Spirit came, the disciples were suddenly fearless. And they were bold. And they understood their Bibles for the first time. And Luke records that they began to speak the word of God boldly, Acts 4.31. And they were found rejoicing because after they were beaten, they, they were found rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace, to suffer shame for Jesus' name. 
Acts 5.41. And how did that transformation happen? It was the spirit of truth. It was the helper, the counselor, the spirit of evangelism. It was the Holy Spirit who would come to do all of that. And he was at work in their hearts, equipping and empowering them to fulfill their calling and to conform them to the image of God's Son, Jesus. And all of that he's doing in your life as well. The apostles' mission was a little different. They had a specific role, specific function. But again, there is great correspondence, great continuity in some areas between us and the disciples. We get the same Holy Spirit. Therefore, God is at work to conform us to the image of Christ, and he is empowering us and equipping us to do whatever work of ministry God gives us to do. And so we know on the day of Pentecost, things really erupted for the apostles. The spirit of truth came and did his work, and hearts were changed. And there could be no doubt the Holy Spirit came to help his disciples. And by his power, they bore much fruit. But this is important. And we need to understand that the Holy Spirit didn't merely come to help his disciples. He also came for another purpose. The second purpose for which the Holy Spirit came, was to judge the world. To judge the world. The Holy Spirit came to judge. Holy Spirit came to help, and now the Holy Spirit comes to judge. Look at verses 8 through 11. And he, when he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and they no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Verses 8 through 11 deal with the spirit's judgment of the world. And consider this, ultimately, ultimately the gospel of John was really not a story of the judgment of Jesus. It was the story of God judging the world. It was a trial of the world. The world is on trial here, not Jesus, at least not in God's eyes. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is referred to as counselor, and whenever he's referred to as counselor, it it may in fact be counselor in in the sense of giving truth, but it's also uh, has legal component to it. And when it refers to God's children, it is the kind of counselor who defends us. He's our defending attorney. So there is the accuser, who is Satan himself, and our defender, because of Jesus, our defender is the Holy Spirit. Normally, that's what the Holy Spirit does. Look at verse 8. But the Holy Spirit also has a prosecutorial role. Verse 8 says, and he, when he comes, will convict, convict. Many of you are good friends with uh, Chris Wolf, who's not here this morning. I, I don't see him. He might be down the hall. Hi, Chris, if you're down there. Uh, Chris is a federal prosecutor, young man, loves the Lord and walks with God. But he's, he's a federal prosecutor. And that's what I think of when I come to this point in this text. We don't think of the Holy Spirit as the prosecutor, but he is. The term convict is a verb. It occurs 18 times in the New Testament. In, in, uh, in this case, or in each case, it involves showing someone his or her sin with a view to secure repentance or judgment. And we don't normally think of the Holy Spirit in these terms as a prosecuting eternity, uh, attorney, attorney. But one of his ministries is to prosecute the world and to bring sinners to conviction before the bench of God, before God the judge. And sinners pretend to be righteous, and they suppress any evidence to the contrary. Just ask anyone, and you should be asking people. I told you, my, my uh, approach to doing this, and I learned this from a couple of guys down at Living Hope, my approach is simply to say, hey, can I ask you a weird question? You know, Hebrews says that um, 
it's appointed for man once to die and after that judgment. So if you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell him? And frequently what I hear, I was at, I think I told you I was at Carmax recently and, and was talking to a Catholic man and he said, because I'm righteous. <laughs> and I thought, oh no. But he said what everybody else means. I've never heard it that clearly. But he said what everybody else means. When they say, I think God's going to out, he's going to weigh my bad against my good, and he's going to see that there's more good than bad. I mean, I tried to be good. I know I did some bad, but I tried to be good. And it's all going to come out in the end. I'm righteous. And the Holy Spirit, the prosecutor, stands beside and says, no, 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 no. You'll never come to God if you think you have any righteousness to offer him. There is a righteousness that you desperately need and you don't have and you cannot earn. And sinners pretend to be righteous and they suppress any evidence to the contrary, but the Holy Spirit comes to expose their guilt and to call them to repentance. In particular, the Holy Spirit convicts with respect to three particular sin, righteousness, and judgment. The result in some cases will be salvation. In others, it will be hardening and everlasting punishment. But let there be no mistake, he has come to convict. He has come to bring evidence to bear, to demonstrate the true condition of your heart before God. And the first thing the Holy Spirit convicts the world of is sin. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. They do not believe in me. As the apostles witnessed about Jesus, the Holy Spirit would take their words and plow up the people's hearts and expose it to the light of God's word. And in some cases, this awakening consciousness of guilt would lead to repentance. In many cases, this conviction led to true repentance. We see that back in Acts chapter 2, or actually forward in Acts chapter 2, where Peter preaches that great sermon. And what was that sermon all about? The sermon, the theme of the sermon was you killed the Messiah. How's that for welcoming into the loving arms of God? The whole sermon, you killed the promised Messiah. He came, he proved that he was the Messiah by many signs and wonders. You heard his words, and in the end, you killed him. And you remember what the response was? Brothers, what must we do? I was on an airplane one time. We were headed to Ukraine, and uh, we were with a team here from, from here in Calvary, and we were headed over to do some ministry in the winter over there, and uh, there were a few stops along the way, and so I thought, uh, I'm going to sit with someone from the church on the first leg, and I'm going to switch and sit with someone else, and I'm going to switch and sit with someone else, just so I can spend time with people. Um, and uh, so after the first leg, I thought, well, I'm going to sit uh, back next to Russ Dar, And I never get time really to talk with him. So uh, I went back there, and sure enough, the guy in the seat across the aisle was one of our team members. And I said, hey, can we just switch places? Sure. So I sat down, and I'm getting ready. I got an hour or so just to talk to Russ. And this young guy comes, and he sits next to me. And I turned and greeted him, and he found out I was a pastor. And he basically said, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> I mean, he didn't say it in those words, but, I mean, it was lightning fast. He was so hungry to hear the gospel. I never spoke to Russ that, that entire leg of the trip for an hour. It started before we left the tarmac and didn't end until we were getting off the plane. This guy was hungry, 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 wanting to hear the gospel. And the more I talked about sin, righteousness, and judgment, he kept saying, that's me, that's me, that's me. Nobody says Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Nobody can see themselves in the, in the eyes as, as God sees themselves, them, unless the Holy Spirit is at work. 
And that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit was at work convicting them, bringing evidence against them. That's why the sermon was so long. And I praise the Lord that his sermon was really long. It just encourages me. <clears throat> but it was full of conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. What happened? And they were filled with a deep sense of their own guilt, and they repented. What did they repent of? Sin. And what was the sin? It was the one great sin which embraces all others for those who have heard the gospel. And it is this, that you have, re- you have not accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, but you have rejected him. That is the one sin that encompasses all others. It is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. The primary sin the Holy Spirit comes to bring conviction about is unbelief. And in the case of Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people. Talk about a move in the Spirit. 3,000 people came under that conviction and repented. Ritterboss notes, the world's deepest misery and lostness does not consist in its moral imperfections, but in the estrangement from God and its refusal to allow itself to be called out of that condition by the one whom God has sent for that purpose. Your problem is not that you have little peccadilloes in your, in your life, little things that you wish weren't there perhaps, or things that you love are there, and, and they're sinful. That's not the primary issue. The primary sin that should haunt you is your estrangement from God, because if that's eternal you're doomed. The Holy Spirit came to convict sinners of such sin and to bring them to repentance. This was the ministry that led to salvation or judgment. Second, the second thing the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of is righteousness. Look at verse 10. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. This is the only place in John's gospel where we find the word righteousness. Romans is full of it, but only here in John. And normally righteousness refers to the truly righteous conduct and standing before God that believers have. But the world doesn't have that kind of righteousness. And I suspect there are some hearing my voice right now who don't have that righteousness. And if I were to ask you, why do you think God's going to accept you into his kingdom? your first word is going to be I, and you've already started down. The first part of that answer isn't I, it's he, it's Jesus. If you can share your testimony and never mention your sin or the cross or Jesus, which is the majority of testimonies I hear, then maybe you don't know the gospel. He comes to convict the world of righteousness. And the kind of righteousness the world has is a self-righteousness, which Isaiah compared in Isaiah 64 to filthy rags in the sight of God. Self-righteousness is nothing other than false righteousness and will merit nothing in the eyes of God. And we see this in the famous narrative of the Pharisee and the tax collector coming to the temple. And we won't delve into that narrative except to say that the Pharisee in the temple, you remember he stood up to pray and nothing wrong with that, that was common and we do that a lot. But here's what his prayer was. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And the tax collector looked up into heaven and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. Once Jesus explained in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And later in that very same chapter, he says, Matthew 5, 48, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You know what he's saying? 
in order to get into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be as good as God. And you might say, hey, that, well, that's not fair. <laughs> I've already blown that. Yep. And every one of us has. No one's as good as God. You're, but that's God's standard. Absolute perfection. That's righteousness. And the only way to get that is not by trying to make yourself more righteous, but to turn to Christ, to fly to Christ for righteousness. The whole book of Romans is about Christ for righteousness. Your greatest need is righteousness, and you can't have it. You can't get it. You can't manufacture it. The only way you can get it is by faith in Christ, Christ for righteousness. So all the glory goes to him. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of its lack of righteousness. But the flip side of the coin on this is also true. The Holy Spirit comes to show the world the absolute righteousness of Christ. You see, the Jews were about to accuse Jesus of being the most unrighteous person in Israel and worthy of death. And that's why they would nail him to a cross. But Jesus would be vindicated. He said in verse 9, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And so rising again and going to the Father would be Jesus' ultimate vindication. You, Israel, rejected me and called me unrighteous, but the standard of all righteousness, the Father himself has welcomed me. And though rejected by the world, he would be welcomed by his Father welcomed home via the cross because he was truly righteous. And that's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit's job was to come and to expose the self-righteousness of the world and to bring it to Christ alone for righteousness. He's the only righteous one. And in him alone, we are made righteous in his sight. Paul, writing to the Colossians, says, he is your sanctification. He is your righteousness. He is your all in all. The only thing you had to contribute to your salvation is your sin. And if you're willing to contribute it, he'll take it. And he will apply his own bloody death to that debt and give you all of his righteousness by the Holy Spirit. Jesus frequently confronted people on their self-righteousness, but now he's leaving. And in his absence would come the Holy Spirit who would continue to multiply this ministry of conviction unto salvation or judgment. And then there's a third thing the Holy Spirit came to convict the world about, and that is judgment. Verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Spirit would convict the world of impending judgment. And I could say a lot here, and there's a lot more in my notes and we don't have time for. And let me just say this. Don't ever share the gospel without telling them about the future judgment. Because if there is no judgment, the gospel is no point. And the judgment, the judgment is first of all on the ultimate accuser and offender, Satan himself. And Jesus has already told us He's condemned already. And anyone who follows him goes where he goes. Judgment is coming. He will be thrown into the lake of fire. And unless you repent, you will also. Come. The whole point of the gospel is the love of God in Christ. You don't have to have what you deserve. You don't have to experience the result of your guilt and shame and everlasting punishment. You could turn to Christ by his grace. And I would plead with you, if the Holy Spirit right now is moving in your heart to do so, do it. Believe. Trust. Give him all of your sin. Give him all of your shame. Give him all of the hidden things that you have stuffed down in your heart that once in a while come out and haunt you, give it all. Don't hold anything back. Just surrender it. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. 
Beloved, this should be a precious revelation of truth to us. As we seek to share the gospel with our unsaved family, friends, neighbors, we can take heart knowing that God the Holy Spirit is at work. He's at work. He's going before us. Yes, it may be a little fearful to step out and turn the conversation in that direction, but, and it may always be a little bit fearful, but you know what? It's not going to be as harrowing as an experience as you think it will. And it may very well be that the Holy Spirit is going before you to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. You never know. It also tells us that we dare not fair, fail to tell. We, we need to be careful that we not fail to tell unbelievers about what lies ahead. And you know what, beloved? Here's, here's the key to evangelism. You don't have to persuade anybody. You don't have to, to hogtie anybody. You don't have to convince them with, with many proofs. All you got to do is get the message right. All you got to do is get the message right. Because the Holy Spirit is the only one who can save them. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Trust him. Speak. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a speaking spirit. He has a word, a word from this book to speak, a truth from this book to speak. And he will speak through you if you will open your mouth. Just speak. And let the Holy Spirit do his job. Your job is simply to get the message of the gospel right and then watch and see how the Holy Spirit uses his own word to bring about conviction and perhaps even salvation to the praise of his glory. Isn't that wonderful? And so I say to you, Calvary Bible Church, take heart. Take heart. The power of evangelism is not your skill, but the Holy Spirit's ministry of salvation and judgment. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I need to hear this message as much as anyone. And the judgment part, perhaps, is maybe the most important part, certainly a critical part, because you have already pronounced judgment on your son. You have already crushed your son on our behalf so that we could be forgiven. And we could take the joy that we have found in the forgiveness of sins in Christ alone to the world. Help us to be faithful. And even now, Father, as we take the Lord's table, remind us of the judgment that the Son bore for us. And fill us with the joy of communion with Christ, which he purchased for us by his blood. May our union with Christ be experienced by means of communion with Christ now and with one another. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.